All right, let's pray, and then we, can, uh, then we can get started. Great prayer here, actually, at the end of the service by Thomas Kempis. He was, uh, I couldn't give you the century, but he was sort of a mystic, uh, uh, at least a mystical theologian. So he has, a, he has a different understanding of one's union with Christ, but a, a gorgeous prayer here at the end of the service. Let us pray. Thou brightness of eternal glory, thou comforter of the pilgrim soul, with thee is my tongue without voice, and my very silence speaketh unto thee. Come, O come, for without thee I shall have no joyful day or hour, for thou art my joy, and without thee my table is empty. Praise and glory be unto thee. Let my mouth, my soul, and all creatures together praise and bless thee. Amen. Okay. Um, actually, uh, Pastor Zagel, who was here last week, uh, that was very helpful, his whole discussion, because frankly, it fits in the whole context of mercy. So uh, that was, it, it, we didn't miss a beat, which was very nice. Um, this week, I think we should just carry on. What we're going to try to do, if you don't know, at least this was sort of the original intent, we would uh, look at a different, a different parable every week. Uh, and some are shorter than others. I was actually surprised that the prodigal son went as quickly as it did. That's sort of a long text. Um, this week, the parable is only about four verses long. Hey. Um, so it might go even more quickly, but more time for questions. So flip open to your, uh, to your handout that you've got there. And just, uh, just you know, sort of rec to recall the distinction. We've talked a lot about justice. Uh, we talked a lot about justice in the women's Bible study last year because that appeared in Simply Christian by N.T. Wright. Uh, that appeared to be a very prominent topic. You remember, if you were in that Bible study, and we talked about it very often, uh, N.T. Wright says that there are four things that sort of the postmodern or post-Christian world uh, are drawn to. There are four things that every human being is drawn to. Beauty, community, spirituality, and justice. Okay? Beauty, community, spirituality, and justice. Um, and I could give you, you know, I could give you examples of all of those. Uh, spirituality, there are pilgrimages every year that Christians and non-Christians all take part in. Why? Because they're drawn to the journey, and the journey is spirituality. Um, community, you know, we sort of revamped our catechumenate or our new member class to highlight the aspect of community in some sense. And I think we just started yesterday, actually, with our next new member class, the pastor's part. What we realized over the past year was building relationships was just as important as giving them the right information. So in the past, we always thought we gave them the right information, but they didn't always build relationships. So we've sort of accented that now. Um, beauty, you know, I've told you the story about the girl who went over to, to Lourdes in, in France, uh, and she always thought beauty was what was on a magazine cover, and she came back after having beheld physically dying people, disformed, uh, disformed and disfigured people, deformed and disfigured people, and came back and said, that is beauty. That is where Christ is present. And we spent a whole year talking about beauty. Uh, the Hebrew word noam is the word for the incarnational presence of God on the altar. That is the same word used. Hey, Betty, where are your glasses? Okay. I re-listened to the first week I taught this just to see how it went, and I, I talked about your glasses quite a bit. I did. I did, yeah. I asked you if you got new glasses, and you said you asked me that last week. To which I said, yeah, I know. I was hoping you wouldn't remember. I do like your glasses, though. Very hip. Um, oh, good. Okay. So uh, 
what were we talking about now? <laughs> beauty? Is that what it was? Oh, yeah. Beauty is where Christ is present. And then the last one, uh, justice, is also a very prominent topic. I mean, ask any college-age kid what they would rather do. Um, for instance, Notre Dame. Go to Notre Dame. What would you rather do? Paint helmets gold on Friday night for the football game or go to Kenya and feed four, poor people? My guess is most college kids today, save myself, uh, would rather feed poor people, right? I mean, that's just a different generation. They do different things. I think it was Claire Bruzek who said when she was at Stanford, the first week of freshman orientation, they sort of have a get to know the school and get to know all the opportunities that are present here uh, for service. And the longest line wasn't student government. It wasn't, I mean, pick your other thing. The longest line was uh, saved our fur. That was the longest line. Why is that? Because people are drawn to justice. Okay, making wrongs right. So that's a very prominent theme in culture today. Um, I just listened this morning. I'm sure many of you were up at 5.30 watching the Pope's closure of the African Synod from the Vatican. Uh, raise your hand if you were watching. Where's Abby? Raise your hand. Yes, Abby was watching. <laughs> that's how our marriage works. Before noon, I pick. After noon, she picks. Um, so it was the closure of the African Synod with all these African priests. It was great to see African priests dancing as part of the liturgy in the Vatican. That doesn't happen very often. But at the very end, he comes out and he sort of gives his papal address and he says, these three things we need to work on, reconciliation, justice, and peace. Sounds like AOR. Reconciliation, justice, making wrongs right, square things up, forgive, confess, and peace, move forward uh, in the joys of what the Lord has done. So this is sort of a worldwide thing. This is not just us. But as you see on your handout, justice um, is different than mercy. Justice is fair, it's impartial, it's objective. If you steal 100 bucks, you've got to pay it back, and you've got to do the time. Mercy is unfair, partial, and subjective. Okay? Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. You know, you're a bad employee, but they give you a pay raise. Um, you're of low degree, and they say you're most blessed. That's mercy. But the distinguishing characteristic of mercy is that mercy actually sticks. We were out in New York, um, and the bishop out there has just started. You may have heard this on NPR this week. The Nehemiah Project in Brooklyn. Anybody hear about that? Yeah, the Nehemiah Project was started. These are all these low-income houses. Uh, they've sort of transformed part of Brooklyn and made it extraordinarily safer than it was before. But guess who was the driving force behind the Nehemiah Project? This was worldwide the bishop of the Atlantic District of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, okay? And his, his comment to us when we were out there was, yeah, justice is a part of this, but guess what? Mercy sticks. If you give someone a home who can't afford a home, that lasts a lifetime. So there's a distinction. Fair, impartial, objective, unfair, partial, subjective, but mercy sticks. And justice, as you see there, apart from mercy, is of the law. Okay, justice apart from mercy. If you're always just saying square things up without being ready to forgive, it's utterly of the law. Justice energized by mercy is utterly of the gospel. This is all from two weeks ago. So there is a sense in which Jesus' way is the way of justice. But at the end of the day, mercy is always his first word. Now somebody tell me, um, if you remember the prodigal son, how mercy was so evident there in the prodigal son story. That memorable. That was great. 
Oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All the way. Yes. Um, even before the son returns, the father's out watching. Because remember it says in the text, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran to him and met him. So yeah, so mercy, and, and then keep talking, keep going. What happens when the son returns to the father? Yep. Good. Keep going, though, but what, what does the son plan to do when he returns to the father? Yep. Yes. Yeah, the son's plan, you remember, while he's out in the wilderness uh, feeding the pigs, the son's plan is, I'm going to go return to my father and have him make me as one of his hired servants. And when he returns, all he can say is, I've sinned. And the father does what? Robe, shoes, ring, feast. No deal. All mercy. Okay? So let's carry on then. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 18. If you've got a Bible, pop that open. Matthew 18, 10 to 14. So this is not the, if you've got a beef against your brother, go to him face to face. This is actually before that. Um, open up to Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. Okay? In general, you'll see there on your handout, in general, so not always, but in general, Jesus is most concerned with these kind of folks. The last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. The last you know from last week's gospel. The first shall be last and the last first, and he who would be first would be servant of all. Okay? The least. Just listen to Mary's Magnificat. He has raised up those of low degree, those who are nothing. He's raised them up and made them higher than kings and queens. The lost. He's all about lost sheep. We talked about it on Friday morning with the women, and you'll hear it again today. He's all about lost sheep. The little. He is most concerned with children. Children both physically and children spiritually, and we'll talk about that today. And the dead. You know, the first week in new members class, we bring him in and welcome him to St. John by saying, guess what, you're all dead, Ephesians 2. And the word there for dead is roadkill, right? You're all roadkill. And roadkill can't bring themselves back to life, but someone else has to do it for them. Jesus is most concerned with those who are dead. All right, here we go, Matthew 18, verse 10. Just keep all that in mind. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Okay. Actually, let me just read the whole text to you before we get started. Matthew 18, 10 to 14. The parable of the lost sheep. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Okay? It's not the, now what comes to mind when you hear that? 
What's the first thing? doesn't matter what it is. It's like the catechumenate. What's the first thing that comes to mind? He wants everybody. Yep, he wants everybody. Good. So if you go straight, it doesn't matter. He'll go and find you. What else comes to mind? Good, seeking the lost. What else? He wants everybody. He seeks the lost. What else? You're talking about sheep now. What about the children? They're little ones. What do you know about kids? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, they get lost very easily. I was at Target the other day, and some girl was utterly lost, sobbing, this young girl. And I could hear her mom about four aisles away yelling at her. I mean, the mom was upset. The girl was distraught. The mom was mad. The girl was sad. So me, being a pastor, tried to reconcile the two. I brought the mom to the daughter. No, I'm serious. The mom was very upset, and the daughter was very scared. And I brought the daughter back to the mom. I kind of said, here's your mom. It's okay. You know? Now, the mom was still upset, and the daughter was still sad. But you are right. They get, they're lost all the time. You hear, I mean, you hear this at Target. Would the mother of Susie Q please report to the front desk? And you know we lost another one, right? So kids don't know what they're doing always. They don't know where they're going. What else do you know about kids? Yes, they do believe what you tell them. You've heard that for weeks now. The vicar preached a great sermon at Concordia River Forest where he said something like, you know, you tell kids that they're beautiful and they are, they believe that they're actually beautiful. You know, you tell kids you're, that they're loved and they actually believe that they're loved. What else, what else do you know about kids? Who takes advantage of kids? Big people, yeah. It's oftentimes not other kids the same age. That take, they do. They take advantage of each other. But oftentimes when you hear sad stories, it's adults who have taken advantage of children. Okay? So keep all that in mind now. That's good. That's a good start. Keep all that in mind as you hear this text. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Matthew 18, verse 10a. To despise them. This is right out of the Greek. So just think about this. To despise is to think little of to look down upon, or to disregard. Have you ever seen a kid enter an adult's conversation, and they kind of get backed out of the circle? And if they say something, it's, you shouldn't talk right now? Guess what? In the church, Jesus says, don't do that. To despise a child is to look down upon them, to disregard them, to think little of them, to not invite them to receive the gifts that you yourselves get to receive. In effect, to despise is not to care about someone. And, and I'm very happy that you know, we haven't heard any of this today, but oftentimes this is what happens at Reformation Sunday. You talk all about the people you don't like, right? We don't like the Catholics. We don't like, the, we don't like these people. And instead, the brilliant thing about his sermon was, you should reform yourselves. I should reform myself. We should be a people of repentance and a people of community and a people of love. That's what the Reformation is all about. The welcome from David Scare was spot on. Reformation is not being defined by what you dislike, but by what you love. Okay? Remember, Lutherans got kicked out. They didn't leave. So Karl Broughton, the great Lutheran theologian, said, we are Catholics in exile, which means you want to come back someday. You want community again. It's not about despising other people. 
little ones, micros, like small, right? Like micro. Do not despise these little ones, the small, the weak, the least, the less ones. It doesn't just mean small in age, it also means small in stature, small in spirituality. Children, both physically and spiritually. Open up your Bibles to 1 John, if you got it there. Remember, that's near the end. I'll try to get your page number in the ESV here. Remember, it's 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John, if you've got the ESV, it's page 1021. Look at 1st John, chapter 2, verse 12. Somebody want to read for us? 1st John, chapter 2, verse 12, 12 through 14. Somebody want to read? Pastor, go ahead. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the fathers. I write to Perfect. Now, you know the epistles, we think of them as letters, but primarily they're written as, do you remember? Sermons. These are sermons. So you've got to imagine this in the context of the divine service. You've got to imagine that a pastor gets up and has a letter from John and says, uh, now I'm going to read something from John, the beloved apostle, and just starts. You know, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched, which we have tasted. These are all sermons, okay? This sermon in particular was preached on the night of the Easter Vigil. This was preached on the night when non-Christians who had been catechized for three years were baptized, oiled, suffered, and brought into the fullness of the community. And you see this if you just look back there at verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. That's the language of the vigil. When does the vigil start? Do you remember? At night. Remember the liturgy talks about darkness to light? The new light is dawning. This is the night, it says, from whence all nights receive their light. For this is the night when Jesus Christ, light of life, rose from the dead. So this is language of the vigil. Now just listen to who he's addressing this to. Little children... Fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. He's talking to people in the catechumenate. Children are new members. Fathers are pastors. Young men are catechists, faithful lay people who are bringing the new catechumens along. So don't think as you read, this is all just to show you, don't think as you read Matthew 18, it's just about little kids who are three, four, and five years old. Children in the scriptures are children physically and children spiritually. Okay? So look at the next section of verse 10, Matthew 18. For I tell you 
that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So children have angels. Maybe one, maybe two, maybe more. So in turn, it's not the, it's not, it is the little and not the big who have an intimate, abiding relationship with God the Father. How do they have a relationship with God the Father? Because they have angels who watch over them. Everybody's got an angel. Lots of angels right here. And you have a relationship with the Father, and consequently with the Son, and consequently with the Spirit, because of the angels who connect you with them. And just so you know, this is, uh, I included a little bit here from the Book of Common Prayer, just to show you how important children are in God's eyes. Uh, one of the more traumatic sort of experiences in the church is when someone has a, a miscarriage. Um, we once had someone in a new member class who was brave enough to sort of talk about it, and they said something like, when I had a miscarriage, uh, the deacon, I think it was the deaconess from that parish, came to, to see her, and uh, she was very distraught, the mother, and the deaconess said, don't worry, you can have other children. Now that's someone who probably shouldn't be a deaconess, okay? Not only because that's not what you say to a mother, but because you have more hope than other children. You actually have hope that that child who has died is now in the presence of Christ because of what got into their ears in their mother's womb, what got into their mouth in their mother's womb. All the gifts that their mother received, they received as well. Uh, you know, they, they do all these studies now where they say kids come out of the womb and what's the voice they recognize? Not all at once now. Mom, yes! My, they recognize mom's voice. So if mom's been in church, how much more can that child come out and know the voice of its father in heaven, right? And moms, everything moms eat, go to the baby, right? Now just, you know, think about this for a second, okay? So here's the prayer from the Book of Common Prayer at the death of a child. Now listen to the language it uses. It steals the language from Matthew 18. O merciful Father, whose face the angels of thy little ones do always behold in heaven, Grant us steadfastly to believe that this thy child hath been taken into the safekeeping of thine eternal love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I've prayed that multiple times with, them, with mothers who have had miscarriages. Their hope is those children have angels, the angels know the Father, and the Father is mercy. Make sense? So Jesus begins by talking about children. Don't despise them. Why? Because they have angels. And if you have angels, you know the Father. And if you know the Father, you know the Son. And if you know the Son, you know the Spirit. Verse 11. Is verse 11 in your Bibles? Which one? In the King James. Is it in your NIV? Nope. Is it in the ESV? Nope. The King James actually is one of the few translations that's in, that includes it. And it reads, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. To reemphasize once more who Jesus is after. He is after people who are lost. Why? Because he is mercy. Mercy goes out to find people who can't find their way home. Mercy finds the child and the target who can't find her mother. That is mercy. What do you think, says Jesus, this is verse 12, if a man had a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, this going astray, just so you know, is in the passive. 
Just like baptism in Romans 6 is in the passive. It means the going astray has been done to this child, to this sheep. It means someone else has led them down the wrong path. It means they didn't go astray on their own. It means someone said, that's the way, not this way. Okay? Now notice also the strangeness of the shepherd. I mean, this is amazing. Think about this. The shepherd leaves 99 healthy, happy, safe sheep in order to go out and find the one. Logical? Illogical? What do you think? Seems illogical. Because what's going to happen the minute that shepherd leaves? Chaos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like when, the, when, when Val leaves the preschool classroom. Have you ever seen that? I mean, if all the teachers walk out of the preschool or kindergarten classroom, what happens? The sheep finally run the pen, right? I mean, they have full control of what's going on in the classroom. If the shepherd leaves, there is chaos. Okay, and chaos, you know, is of the law. What else happens to those sheep? Not only chaos, but their lives are in danger. They're vulnerable. And, and I think partly what this is showing you is, are there really 99 safe sheep? It's like when Jesus says, you know, when one sinner repents, the heavens rejoice over that more than the 99 who never needed repentance. Are there really nine who, 99 who never need to repent? There are a hundred lost sheep. Okay? There are a hundred lost sheep. And Jesus goes after all of them. Listen to Capon here. I think it is best to assume that Jesus is parabolically thumping the tub for the saving paradox of lostness. He implies, it seems to me, that even if all 100 sheep should get lost, it would not be a problem for this bizarrely good shepherd because he is first and foremost in the business of finding the lost. In other words, this should come as comfort to you and to me. Give Jesus a world full of losers and lost ones, and he'll spend his time going after them. That's what he's all about. Um, think about your family members who aren't part of the church. Think about kids you know that haven't been baptized. Think about relationships that are falling apart. Think about your own community, your church community. Think about the world. Jesus is all about finding lost, broken losers. He's all about finding us. And if he finds it, verse 13, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So up till now, it's been all about lostness, but now he turns the entire parable on its head. It's no longer about lostness. Now it is about the joy in finding the one. Okay? Now it is about the Cairo, which should remind you of Eucharist. This is the joy of heaven. This exact same word is used in Revelation. It's the way of extraordinary gratitude for having your family back together again. The shepherd's family are his sheep. That's who defines him. That's who he takes comfort in. That's who he rejoices in. That's who he does not want to lose. When he finds the one lost one, he rejoices. Why? Because the family is family again. I mean, the whole problem in Genesis 1, the whole reason there's a fall, is not because Adam and Eve sinned. Yeah, that's right. The sin in Genesis 1 is a broken relationship. It's a broken relationship between Adam and Eve and their father. It's a broken relationship between Adam and Eve. And it's a broken relationship between Adam and Eve and the rest of creation. It's not just that they ate the fruit. They did that. 
But guess what? Before they ate the fruit, they had already broken their relationship. They said, we'll have it our way and not his way. It's the same thing with these sheep. And it was the same thing with the prodigal son. What was the sin of the prodigal son? He left the community. He went to a distant country. He left his family and his friends. He broke community by leaving. That's the same problem with the sheep. Someone tells the sheep, that's the way you should go, while the other 99 head off with their shepherd. It is at the heart of the shepherd's will to find the sheep. That's what defines the shepherd. Not about just caring for the sheep along the way. We think of Jesus, the good shepherd, right, as the one who sort of walks with stupid sheep down the road and moves them out of the way when the cars come. And Yeah, part of Jesus being the good shepherd is he's always out finding the lost one. And you and I, although we're Christians, although we're in the community, every day struggle with being the lost ones. Every time you say to the Lord, I'll have it my way, or the great, the great revelation from last Saturday, every time you say to the Lord, I'll fear things over you, guess what? You're a lost sheep. And Jesus comes out and finds you and brings you home, right? It's the great, it's the great good shepherd hymn, the king of love my shepherd is, you know, and on his shoulders gently lays and home rejoicing brought them. That's the way Jesus works. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So now he's back to children. At first it's children. God loves them, he gives them angels. He also finds lost sheep. Guess what? It's not the will of my Father that one of these children should perish. It's not the will of my Father that those who are weak and small and insecure and easily led astray, both physically and spiritually, should go astray, should be perished, should die the death of a sinner. The will, the Greek word there is the desire. The desire of the Father is that everyone has life. That's, and that's every last person. If you go home today and say, there are some in the world that I don't think will ever know Jesus and too bad for them, you're not a Christian. Christian life is marked by going after those who don't know Christ. The will of the Father, the desire of the Father, is that no one be given up on and no one be led astray. Don't ever tell me I worked hard on my kids for 20 years and now they're doing this. You don't give up. You don't give up on people in this community. You don't give up on your children. You don't give up on your friends. You don't give up on the world. And the will of the Father, all of that is to show mercy. You remember the great thing about, about lost sheep? What brings the lost sheep home? The shepherd goes out and does what? Remember from John's Gospel? He speaks. I mean, Pastor Nelson had a brilliant sermon this morning. He's got another brilliant sermon in three years. You know why? How, I know. You know why? Blind Bartimaeus. How does he find Jesus? He hears him. Jesus speaks, he's a blind, and the text says the blind man ran after Jesus. Now think about a blind man running. And, and it was kind of a throwaway line, and I said to him afterwards, I'm going to steal that for three years from now. It was a throwaway line in a sermon. You can imagine a blind person running. Imagine a blind person running after Jesus. What draws him to Jesus is the voice. Remember Jesus says to the blind man, come here. The shepherd says to the sheep, come here. What draws you back is the living voice of the Good Shepherd. And guess what? You have the living voice as well. 
So flip to the next page. Notice then that this parable is all about grace. Not about the shepherd repenting. It's not about the shepherd saying, I screwed up. I'm sorry, the sheep. Not about the sheep repenting, the sheep saying, that's not it. It's not about the kids saying, sorry, mom, I got lost. Guess what? Kids get lost. And it's not always their fault. This is all about grace. It's all about the shepherd finding the sheep. It's all about the parent finding his child. The lost sheep is not capable of any sort of repentance. All that matters is the shepherd's will to find. It is our sin and not our goodness which most commends us to God's mercy. You know why he loves you? Because you're a damn sinner. You know why he loves me? Because I'm a damn sinner. Okay? That's the message of Reformation. He loves you because you're a sinner. He loves you in spite of yourself. So listen to this bit then from Capon. Um, we give this to many of the new members, but it surprisingly came from this section of, of his, his work on the parables. He was working on the parable of the lost sheep when he wrote this. Consider the following propositions, all of which I think are true. A lost sheep is, for all practical purposes, a dead sheep. It's going to be eaten by some wolf somewhere. A lost coin is likewise a dead asset. In addition, if I may look forward a bit to the parables of the unforgiving servant and of the prodigal son, that's good because we just did it, a debtor about to be foreclosed on is, de is a dead duck, and a son who has blown his inheritance is a dead beat. These parables of lostness, therefore, therefore are far from being exhortations to repentance. They are emphatically not stories designed to convince us that if we, if we will wind ourselves up to some acceptable level of moral and or spiritual improvement, God will then forgive us. It's not about you. Rather, they are parables about God's determination to move before we do. In short, to make lostness and death the only tickets we need to the supper of the Lamb. In all of them, in all the parables, it is precisely the lost and thus the dead who come to the party. The older son didn't get a party last week. It was the lost son. In none of them is any of the unlost and thus the living in on the festivities. More than that, in none of these parables is anything except the will of God portrayed as necessary to the new life in joy. You can't do anything. Neither the lostness nor the deadness nor the repentance is in itself redemptive. God alone gives life, and he gives it freely and fully on no conditions whatsoever. These stories, therefore, are parables of grace and grace only. There is in them not one single note of earning or merit, not one breath about rewarding the rewardable, correcting the correctable, or improving the improvable. There is only the gracious, saving determination of the shepherd, the woman, the king, and the father. All surrogates for God to raise the dead. And this is what we give to the new members, because all of them are scared of what repentance might mean. Okay, now just listen to this. That, I think, puts repentance and confession and contrition and absolution and all their ancillary subjects in a different light. Confession, for example, turns out to be something other than what we thought. It is not the admission of a mistake which, thank God in our better nature, we have finally recognized and corrected. Oh gosh, I shouldn't have been you know, 
doing drugs for 30 years. I'm so glad I stopped that. That is not confession. Rather, it is the admission that we are dead in our sins, that we have no power of ourselves either to save ourselves or to convince anyone else that we are worth saving. It is the recognition that our whole life is finally and forever out of our hands, and that if we ever live again, our life will be entirely the gift of some gracious other. And to take the other side of the coin, absolution too becomes another matter. It is neither a response to a suitably worthy confession nor the acceptance of a reasonable apology. Absolution in Latin means not only to loosen, to free, to acquit, it also means to dispose of, to complete, to finish. When God pardons, therefore, he does not say he understands our weaknesses or makes allowances for our errors. He doesn't understand and he doesn't make allowances. Rather, he disposes of, he finishes with, the whole of our dead life and raises us up with a new one. He does not so much deal with our derelictions as he does drop them down the black hole of Jesus' death. He forgets our sins in the darkness of the tomb. He remembers our iniquities no more in the oblivion of Jesus' expiration. He finds us in short, listen to this, he finds us in short in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. That should dramatically change the way you think about a number of things. Repentance is a gospel word because God calls you back. It is not you. Absolution is a gospel word because it does away with your sins. He doesn't just say that's all okay. He doesn't say I understand. He says they are finished. The lost sheep come back and he says forget about it. It's done. And frankly, living then in forgiveness is a different matter too. Living in forgiveness, listen very carefully, this is what happens to the sheep when they come back. Living in forgiveness means that guilt is gone. But it doesn't mean that responsibility is gone. It's a very different way of thinking. Guilt is gone, but responsibility is present. And in fact, I would say, responsibility is more than it was before. Why? Because you are forgiven. You're back in the, sh in the sheepfold. You're part of Eden again. Community is restored. That's what forgiveness is. Free from guilt but not free from responsibility. And that's what Jesus does here with these 99 sheep. He keeps them there while he finds the one, he brings the one back, he forgives them, guilt is gone, and now he says, come be part of the sheepfold again and walk with us. That's their responsibility. So I would just, on the way out, think about this. When is it, not when is it proper, when have you been like a childlike sheep? And when have you been like the shepherd who goes after them? Because in a very real sense, that's both, that's, I mean, that's our life together. Sometimes you're the sheep, and we go after you. And sometimes you need to be the father of the child or the shepherd of the sheep who goes out to find the lost one. Both responsibilities are ours because we belong to Jesus. And he, in a sense, is both. He's the sheep who dies, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he's the shepherd who finds us in our lostness. And all of that, all of that is mercy. That was a bit like that ending right there was a bit like a sermon that never stops. You're always thinking, he should just say amen. He should just say, and he just keeps going. Like, I got one more thing. I got it on my notes here. I got one more thing I got to say. Amen, okay? It's all about mercy. That was one more thing. Uh, any questions or comments? You all okay?
Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of us too still have to learn that. So I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy you did, and maybe you can help us along too. Because it is a whole different deal. Very much. Yeah. All right, anything else? Yes, right. And, and, uh, but I think to tell that yeah. is far superior than just the, the, the ten truths. Agreed. Yeah, the, the, the message of evangelism is just to show the world that you are a lost sheep and the Lord keeps coming after you. Because there are a lot of people that are lost sheep and don't know that anyone's coming after them. So yeah, I agree. And you're always lost. You know, that's the, that's the old Adam. He's a good swimmer. Sheep are good at getting lost, right? Yeah, yeah. That's your life. Anything else? All right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, ever and ever. Amen. Have a great Sunday.